This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you and it's time for a trip around of Big Country. This week we're stepping into a busy butcher shop where we'll meet a keen apprentice who's following in her mum's footsteps, honing her knife skills and learning about different cuts of meat. We'll take a tour of a regional brewery that's recycling water and tapping into the power of the sun as it reduces its environmental footprint with the aim of becoming carbon neutral. And we'll hear about an initiative that's turning dead wood into a valuable resource in a remote Indigenous community. It's also giving a group of young men something that's turning out to be life-changing. Yeah, well, they've got a lot more confidence. They um, make them happy, I suppose. It, it gives them money in their bank to, to be able to you know, buy new clothes, buy stuff. A lot of them talk about saving up, buying a Toyota and going out traveling, going fishing, going hunting. So it, it gives them a, a good meaning in life, you know. We'll hear more about how harvesting firewood is giving young men in a remote community paid work as well as returning profits to local residents. That is coming up. First today, we're headed to the lush forest of Victoria's Otway Ranges, where Alastair Watt has spent the last 40 years nurturing rare trees collected from around the globe. Reporter Rihanna Stevens visited Alastair in his garden. Uh, we're going to have a look at the, a Chinese conifer called Taiwania. We're in Alistair Watts' garden on a misty spring day. It feels more like a manicured forest. Small paths weave between towering trees. Alistair is taking me to see his favourite tree. My favourite is a, is a conifer called Decridium guilleminii. It's very rare. There you are. That's my real favourite. So this, this is probably about... 15 years old, this this particular little specimen. It's tiny. Yep. It's a spindly thing which comes up to Alastair's waist. Even in a warmer climate, this conifer wouldn't grow more than about two metres. Only grows in one little spot in New Caledonia beside a river. Actually grows in the water of the river. But if you, if you see it growing in the wild, it just looks so ancient you just can imagine a dinosaur walking down to drink at the river and splatting his big foot on top of it and there it goes getting even more rarer. Alistair's passion for rare trees stretches back four decades to when he and his family first moved to the Otways and he set up a furniture making business. I make furniture for a living and one of the timbers I worked with was Ewan Pine. I actually opted to stop using it. It shouldn't be getting used for what I was doing. Dujuan pine is a, a, a very beautiful wood and it's very slow growing. It only grows along riverbanks in very wet places in Tasmania. And it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to get a tree big enough to mill for timber. Instead of using logged Huon pine for timber, Alistair decided to have a go at growing his own in his garden. I tried to track some down here to grow. Uh, eventually I found some. So there's a hue and pine. This little beauty could be growing for another one or 2,000 years. This is one of the first trees I planted here. This is a matter of great patience. Well, I got the hue and pine growing and then I started tracking down other trees and it became obvious that uh, some of the trees I was interested in growing weren't being grown in Australia 
So then became a new challenge, how to find the way to go and get them from overseas uh, to bring back for the garden. Hunting for rare trees has taken Alistair to Asia, the Pacific and South America. Plant hunting is the term they use or plant exploration. What you do is you do all your research, preparation, uh, write to lots of people over there, forestry departments, university is that, um, and then get over, go and track them down. Bring, well, you're bringing seeds mainly uh, and cuttings. Probably I introduced something around 200, 250 new plant species to Australia and to some gardens overseas. Alastair's expeditions were often done in collaboration with botanic gardens in Australia. The cuttings and seeds he brought in would go through a quarantine process at special secure greenhouses within botanic gardens. The process could last months, even years, before the material was deemed safe and Alastair could plant some of the specimens in his garden. Slowly, Alastair has transformed what was once a treeless paddock into a forest. This was a completely bare block, not a thing on it. 40 years later, we've got almost 100% what you'd call forest and woodland cover. Alastair's trees could be here for thousands of years. He says they act as an insurance policy if the original populations are ever wiped out. If it ever is lost in the wild, there is some semblance of a stop left. Some of these trees uh, are recorded as being here. Someone needs to get them for scientific work. Alastair's collection of rare trees has also given him entry to an exclusive club. Very proud to say I'm a member of the International Dendrology Society, and that is for people who grow trees. And this is where I think is really cool. It's, there was an article published on the most exclusive societies in the world that you can't join. Well, our society was on that list. You can only be in it if you're invited to join. Yeah, I mean, it's not a planned career path. It's just something that, you know, it keeps grabbing your attention. People say you're mad to start a garden like this, but then after 40 years, you get used to doing it and living it. Um, I don't know how people manage not to build a garden. In a remote community on South Australia's far west coast, a group of young Yalata Ananu men are firing up chainsaws and turning dead wood into a valuable resource. Hello, I'm Jodie Hamilton. I'm watching on as this team of workers gather and chop wood to be packaged up and sold as firewood. The profits from firewood sales will help fund the purchase of solar panels and offset some of the costs as the community transitions to paying for their energy supply, as Yalata Anna, new Aboriginal Lands Chief Executive David White explains. The people here have never had to pay for their power. That's changing in the next year. So what we tried to do is get the board to search deeply into their hearts and see what was a positive. And we came up with an opportunity thinking, okay, if we, we've got plenty of dead wood lying around, which is a product called Western Mile, and it burns hot, long, and leaves no ashes, and everybody wants to, wants to use it. So we did a deal with a, an outside company called Longburn Firewood. They have opportunities, already have contracts with people like Coles Express, 
we thought, okay, if we get a band of people together and see if we can um, learn how to package and collect wood and sell it to this Longburn, what would happen? We explained to the people that who were going to join was, look, okay, it's a new business. We need your help. You will be paid a good wage for the work that you do. And then any profits that we make from this business, we would put back into the community. And they said, how are we going to put it back? I said, right, we're going to be charged for power. If we could buy a solar panel or solar panels for each house and generate our own power, you know, with the profits of the uh, wood business, well, everybody, it's a win-win. David White says for many of the men working on the firewood project, this has been the first time they've earned a weekly wage. A lot of these guys we were in touch with because they come through our youth programs, obviously our school and our sport area. So we knew who they were and we didn't see them around much and they're generally sitting around playing computer games. So we got a couple of those guys out, took them outside. So, you know, we've got lots of land here and uh, lots of spaces and lots of wood. So we first took them outside in our vehicles and showed them what we were going to do. Showed them some videos of other successful wood businesses and how they went about it. Five turned to 10, turned to 15. You know, these people started telling other people and the guys were involved from the ground floor up. You know, these young fellows built the business on their own. Um, It was very exciting for them and then um, we've got a, a really good young man, uh, Will Wilton, who leads the crew. And it, it's like a little footy team in there, you know. They joke around and they verbally, they, they're very serious when they're handling the heavy equipment and stuff. But when they're packaging and stuff, there's lots of lots of fun and laughter, which is good. They're a great bunch of young lads. Very enthusiastic at the moment. You know, it's been going on pretty well for a few months now. Do you think part of the success is that that money that they might be generating or that they are generating is going back into the community for a cause? I'm sure it is. It was hard to sort of convince people to um, believe what we were doing, but once we showed them that the value of each packet they did, you know, what we sell it for and what we do, you know, how much percentage that goes to their wages and then what's left, you know, pays for equipment and fuel and stuff. And then again, the profits at the end of the year will go into actually powering their own houses. They were very excited, very proud. And will that give them pride um, in ownership in the community as well? It it really has already. You know, the kids are really, uh, there's a lot of chatter about it, you know, amongst the community members. And there's been some feedback from outside of the community, which has made the guys really proud about their achievements already. I think just turning up to work and having fun and still achieving our daily goals, you know, which is there's a pallet consists of 66 bags of wood and we have to have 22 pallets put it to load a truck up to go out of here and that's a lot of wood. Team coordinator William Wilton says the young men enjoyed getting out on their land but also working in the shed to package the product. So in the mornings the fellas rock up, they have tea, coffee, we have a bit of a yarn about what we're going to do during the day, we're going to delegate some jobs to each other, split up into groups and we'll have a group go out in the troopy with a trailer, pick up the timber, we'll have a group out the back cut it up into the sections, into the 300ml sections and fill these tubs here for the packaging stage. Mr Wilton says the work being done is not just for the community, but for the workers' mental health as well. Yeah, well, they've got a lot more confidence. They um, makes them happy, I suppose. It, it gives them money in their bank to, to be able to you know, buy new clothes, buy stuff. A lot of them talk about saving up, buying a Toyota and going out travelling, going fishing, going hunting, so it it gives them a a good meaning in life, you know. Ashley Barnell has had his chainsaw qualifications for about five years and was the first to sign up to work. He says he loves getting out and doing something for his community. I like to be out on country and cutting wood, it's peaceful, the fellas love it and when we come out here, like 
cutting wood, have a bit of a walk around, tell stories about the land and, and the wood that we cut. It's the hardest wood in Australia that we got. So gutty wood, that's the hard wood. Sometimes our chainsaws get blunt and we have to sharpen them, mean bit of maintenance and stuff like that. I like to be out on country and operating a chainsaw and showing the other followers how to operate a chainsaw. Like, if they want to cut quickly, they have to do it safely and make sure they've got PP, like helmet, chaps and sunglasses so they don't lose an eyesight and stuff like that. Before I start cutting, I'm checking trees, make sure there's no birds and live animals uh, living amongst them. And the community is not just taking the dead wood to sell, but local rangers are also helping to revegetate the Western Miles. Yalata Ananu Aboriginal Lands Head Ranger Andrew Alderson says it's important to look at the future of the trees too. Yeah, so in the past we would just clear cut and fell, so we'd be left with a big bare patch, but now we're the ranger program's trying to rehabilitate the sites with new trees because the recruitment of young baby trees in this species is very difficult. It only happens once every 20 to 30 years and we want to give it a bit of a head start. We collect seeds from the trees each spring. Once we got them all back at base, we soak them in hot water overnight. Once the seed's shot, we then plant them out singly in little containers and, yeah, give them some love and... It will take a couple of years before we can get them in the ground, but yeah, they're a very slow growing tree, so it takes a lot of love and care. Yeah, so the community traditionally hasn't replaced trees. Normally you just go and cut down what you needed and 10 years later you come back and there's trees to replace, but now we're a bit more intensive with the, with the harvesting. We're trying to encourage the community to put back what we take out. I guess it's a longer term view of the bush rather than here and now, what I need now, and then and then taking it's it's thinking about the future so that the kids of the people who are benefiting from the wood now will benefit from that in the future. Andrew Alderson, a ranger with Yalata Ananu Aboriginal lands on the far west coast of South Australia, ending that report from Jody Hamilton. You can read more about that story. You'll find it on the RN homepage at abc.net.au slash rn. Look for A Big Country Under Programs. I'm Clint Jasper with you for A Big Country on RN. And still to come, we'll chat with the young butchers behind the counter at a popular country butcher shop. And we'll discover how a regional brewery is using renewable energy and recycled water to reduce its environmental impact. At this brewery in regional New South Wales, sustainability is top of mind. Brewing obviously uses quite a lot of water. A competitive industry standard is four litres of water per litre of beer used, and we're very close to that at the moment. So the next frontier for us is really reducing that further. The way we propose to do that is, you can see these tanks behind us here, that's what's called trade waste. So our wastewater goes into those tanks and eventually down the sewer. What we want to do is actually put the water from those tanks into artificial wetlands essentially, so ponds that will have floating wetland vegetation in them. And what that vegetation will hopefully do is strip out nitrogen and phosphorus from the water, as well as giving the water time to settle become more highly oxygenated and just cleaner. And then the ultimate goal of that is that should this work, we'll be able to pipe that back into the brewery and use it for cleaning floors and things like that. And then it goes back into the system and starts all over again. So much more circular use of the water. Hello, I'm Nick McLaren. 
I'm chatting to Ocean Sweeney, the Director of Sustainability and Brewing at Jervis Bay Brewing at Huskisson on the New South Wales south coast. Recycling water through wetlands is just one of the initiatives the brewery is undertaking to reduce their environmental impact with a goal of becoming carbon neutral. Wetlands are known to be one of the best water purifying systems that you can find. I'm an ecologist by training so I'm very drawn to sustainability naturally and look I'm going to be honest it's a bit of an experiment we'll see how they work but I'm really confident that the ponds will definitely get the water to a much higher standard than trade waste alone. I have identified a lot of wetland vegetation that we'll actually use, some rushes, some reeds and things like that, and we'll have them all on a big floating uh, hoop, I guess. And fingers crossed, they do the job of cleaning up the water for us. Where I'm standing now, I can see uh, an electric vehicle, and it's not just a sedan, it's actually a, a van. And behind that are the big silver cylindrical I don't know if you call them vats that the the beer is made in or stored in. Tell us what's going on here. This is pretty exciting. The electric vehicle that you see is new to us. It actually spends most of its time in Sydney with our Sydney sales ambassador, but he's down for a meeting today, so he's got it plugged in there, and that is being 100% charged by the solar panels that are up on our roof, which is very gratifying. It's our ultimate aim to move towards a fleet of electric vehicles and replace all petrol-powered vehicles, but as you'll know, there's been a little bit of policy stasis on that, so they're still very expensive and reasonably hard to come by, so we're hoping things will change. So so do you have to have a a battery for it to charge off the battery? No, not at all. When the sun's out and our panels are producing electricity, everything that uses the electricity in the building is using electric from our solar, preferentially. So That's how solar works these days. So you can hear the chiller units humming away in the background as well. They are one of the biggest energy users in the brewery because cooling liquid is pretty much where all of our power goes. The chillers, all the cooling, the electric vehicle, all the people working on laptops, all the pumps that are running at the moment are all being covered by our solar power now, which is fantastic. And what happens at night then? Does it have to switch back to regular power at night? It does. That's absolutely correct. So that's... the a big frontier. We're working on that. I've been looking into, for example, wind turbines. At the moment, they're reasonably expensive and I've got a bit more research to do to figure out whether we can get a micro turbine here and it will produce enough power for us. All right, let's uh, wander up to the front. So we're standing in front of what looks like three tanks with pipes attached to them and some kind of uh, electronic uh, device that uh, looks quite technical. What, what are we looking at here? Actually, what you're looking at is very simple. They're domestic solar hot water units. So I mentioned to you about our solar electricity, the um, solar PV, but we've also got these three tanks that heat water passively on the roof as well. One of the biggest energy costs in terms of gas for us is heating water. So anything we can do to preheat the water before it goes into the brewery saves us on gas and therefore saves in carbon emissions. We have had these in from day dot in this brewery. We're going to get them retrofitted across the road so we'll then be able to look at our new gas use compared with the old gas use without these solar hot water units and do a calculation to see how much we're not emitting. But you still have gas as a a backup? Yeah, absolutely. At the moment we can't escape gas. We have a steam boiler and in order to boil the liquid that is required as a part of the brewing process, you really have no option but gas at the moment. That's why technology like green hydrogen is so so exciting for industrial processes because were we able 
to get rid of gas, we would essentially only have to reduce our nighttime electricity emissions and we'd be really on a path to zero emissions. In her hometown of Donnybrook in southern Western Australia, 21-year-old Zoe Worsfold is following in her mum's footsteps, becoming a butcher. Mum, yeah, she loved the idea of me being an apprentice butcher, taking after her steps and stuff, so that was good. I also went to Harvey Ag College and did a bit there of butchering, so that helped as well, and I enjoyed it there, so yeah. G'day, I'm Ellie Honeybone. I'm chatting to Zoe in the butcher shop where she is undertaking her apprenticeship under the guidance of another female, 22-year-old butcher shop owner, Georgia Rutter. And so far, Zoe says working with meat and sharp knives is a role she really loves. It's easy working with a great crew. I love it, I guess. So, yeah, so far I love it. Um, I do a bit of everything. I'm really fortunate, I guess, being a mature apprenticeship apprentice. I get to do a lot more than probably younger apprentices, having the more life skills, I guess, being older. So learning the more advanced things um, every day. So that's, yeah, that's good. It's a pretty small team here, but you've got two girls out of like five people. How does that, that must be pretty awesome to have. Yeah, no, it's really good having another girl, um, keep the, the boys in line. And um, <laughs> that's what everyone asks me every day, all the customers, oh, you're keeping the boys in line. So, yep. We are. Yeah, having a girl boss as well is, is great. And it's easy when Jordan, Bryn and Mason have the passion and it just, it's easy when they have the passion there. So like it rubs off on you. And I guess going over and beyond for other customers is just really good and just feels like you're always doing good deeds. And it's just, yeah, it's really nice because they're always happy with it. And I love that a steak's not just a steak. There's so much more to it. Do you ever go home and... Um chat with your mum about tips and tricks and like how how's she going with it yeah she's she always asks how it's going and um and says how I do things and like tells me how to do stuff better and says come on Zoe we're sharpening knives today come learn or whatever but yeah sometimes yeah I'm Georgia Rutter and I'm co-owner I'd say of um Donnie Rook Butchers with yeah Bryn and I are in a partnerships in the shop so yeah Obviously, I didn't think I would be in this industry a few years ago, but, you know, Bryn's really passionate about it and I definitely, like, wanted to help him with that and definitely believed in his passions. And I came from, like, a food background. My mum had a cafe, so obviously different a butcher, but still kind of similar things. So, um, no, I definitely thought, you know, give it a crack and see how we go. And, you know, I love it, loving being here and learning so much and you know it's nice having Zoe here as well another girl it's um, always good to not be outbalanced by the boys <laughs> so what, yeah what's it like running a butcher shop every day like um it's definitely different to what obviously I said I thought I would be doing but no it's awesome you meet so many lovely people and everyone's so nice and you learn I think being in a small town as well it's definitely different if you're in Perth or something you know we um know most of the people that come in and learn you know I've definitely become friends with lots of people that I wouldn't have probably known beforehand and yeah it's great and definitely long hours but it's great you know we enjoy what we do I think that's what helps if you know if you don't like what you're doing it's definitely going to be a lot harder to get up every day and do it so yeah. (laughs) Do you think it helps having some some girls in here just to you know make sure things are done right? (laughs) Yes no definitely definitely girls it proves that they 
I think we think a lot different to boys. <laughs> I mean, even like teaching Zoe, Zoe didn't really know much to start with and it's definitely a lot easier teaching a girl than a boy. I think just a lot more common sense, I'd say. <laughs> um, you know, and we think, you know, it's good we think a bit differently. So we get catch on things that the boys might not quite, you know, catch on about or things like that. So, no, it's definitely, definitely good having another girl in here. <laughs> what would be your favourite aspect about owning and, and running this business? Um, you can make any decision you want and anything you like, oh, maybe we should try that. You don't have to ask someone or can we do that? Like, you can just do it what you want. Like, um, and I think that's good because we can change things every day or do whatever we like. So it's, it's good having that, you know, freedom to change things and try new things. So, yeah. You've got a swag of trophies around here. Too. <laughs> You're obviously doing pretty well. Just some customers just now said that you put a lot of passion and into it and you can and they can tell. Yeah. What do you what do you say to that? Oh, I think it's really nice that, you know, we, you, we do put so much time and effort into it and I think it's really nice that we have, you know, been got awards to show that we like proves that we do do a lot of work and it's lovely so many customers come in and say congratulations and it's really nice how many people have noticed and they do know how much work we put in and it's not you know it's not, not unseen you know so yeah Georgia Rudder from Donnybrook Butchers in southwest Western Australia, where we also heard from her apprentice Zoe Worsfold in that interview with reporter Ellie Honeybone. Before that, Nick McLaren took a tour of the Jervis Bay Brewing Co's brewing plant on the New South Wales south coast. You'll find more on those stories and all of the stories on today's program. Just log on to the RN homepage and look for A Big Country. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.